0: Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. With me today is Anne Cairns, Executive Vice Chair of MasterCard. Anne represents MasterCard around the world, focusing on inclusion, diversity, and innovation is also the Chair of the Financial Alliance for Women and the Global Chair of the 30% Club, which was established to achieve at least 30% representation of women on boards and C-suites globally. Today, we're gonna to talk about how leaders can drive change and create equality in the boardroom. Anne, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been really looking forward to the conversation. I think one of the things that would be fascinating to hear in your very illustrious career so far is what you'd actually hold dear as the most significant moments up to this point as a way to kick things off.
1: Well, thanks very much, Peter. It's great to be with you today. Um, I've had such a long career, over 40 years, but I think the significant moments are things where you have a real change point in your life. The first really big one for me was working offshore in Britain. I was the first woman to ever go on the um, oil and gas rigs in the North Sea and the Irish Sea. And I had so many interesting experiences with that. I, I then joined banking and I became an international banker and I worked all over the world. And I would say one of the most significant events of my life there was that I um, I had my daughter when I was 37 and I actually got promoted on maternity leave at Citibank, which isn't uh, something that happens very often, I think, even in today's world. But it gives you a lot of confidence when that happens. Another significant moment for me was uh, after I'd left banking, I went on to join a restructuring company and I became the CEO of Lehman Holdings in Europe during their bankruptcy. And that was in the last financial crisis and was uh, very exhilarating, a very taxing role, but again, a very high learning opportunity and then um, and then finally i joined mastercard and uh and ended up running everything outside america over 200 countries and it's hard to think about significant moments at mastercard because it's been such an incredible ride for the last 11 years and i would just say that i've loved it all
0: What would you say at that time, I mean, because it's, I mean, there's some, wow. I mean, you could spend a while talking about all those things, but it would be fascinating to know with all those, with with those different roles and those different experiences so far, why is it that you've chosen to end up doing the work that you're doing now, Anne? What is it about the particular subjects and subject matter that means that's worth all of your endeavors and expertise?
1: Well, first of all, um, what I learned when I became an offshore engineer was that the world was designed for men. Uh, I put on my wetsuit. They threw me into the North Sea um, as part of my training. And uh, all of the water gushed through the hood of my wetsuit because it wasn't really designed for a woman's face. And, you know, if I'd been in a helicopter, you know, escaping from a helicopter, I I could have died of exposure because I just didn't have the right gear. And it, it was then that I kind of thought to myself, well, this isn't right. You know, both sexes should be able to have things made for them which work and give them a level playing field. I mean, that was an offshore example, but I'm sure we can think of hundreds of things from crash dummies to the temperatures of offices and so on. And it really influenced my life.
0: I can understand why such a, um, wow, such a dramatic and almost hard to fathom, to be honest with you, experienced, um, meant that you had a long, long uh, a long-running desire to make change there. The first question that I want to ask in relation to context is, has there been progress?
1: Yes and no. I mean, there has been progress, but there hasn't been enough progress. You mentioned that I chair the 30% Club. And when we started about 12 years ago, there was about 12% women on boards in, in the FTSE. Um, now we're nearly at 40. But of course, we haven't changed our name because we work all over the world and in different parts of the world, like. Brazil or Japan or the Middle East, they're far, far, far off 30%. And the reason for 30% is to get to that tipping point where you cease to be a minority. And once you've reached that tipping point, things can change. So there has been some change on boards, but the percentage of women at executive C-suite level is about 22% today in the FTSE. And my background is very much a STEM background. And so few women are still graduating in STEM subjects and going into STEM fields. I think it's around about 17%. So I was the only woman in my day in my field when I joined British Gas. And then several years later, more women joined, but it was only a handful of us. Today, there's more than a handful, but there's as I say, you know, you can go into rooms and you can often just be 10% or less than
0: 10%. The country breakdown is a fascinating one. So one of the questions that I want to get onto, but I have a feeling that there might be two or three before that that might make a bit more sense is how on earth do you go about attempting to make change on a global basis when there is quite clearly such a big difference between societies and countries approach to this? I would imagine uh, doing a little bit of reading, as I have done, that there, there are some industries that do this better than others, Anne, or is it a situation that actually, no, there's, n- there's no correlating data to say one you know one do over the other. Technology, for example, isn't traditionally an area that where there is a very, very high percentage of women within the technology sector, maybe compared to the life sciences industry. I'd be fascinated to hear what, what, if there are any examples of sectors that do it better than others.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. There are sectors that do it better than others. And there are companies that um, stand out in their sectors. I mean, I think if you look at companies like um, Unilever and Diageo, for example, you know, they perform rather well in terms of percentage of women in companies, you know, number of women at the top of the companies, number of women on their boards and so on. The finance sector does less well than other sectors. And so does the tech sector. So there are definitely people, you know, companies and people who run companies who are out there in front. And um in some senses, it can be related to what degrees people are coming out of university with. But the interesting thing about that is if you think about, I don't know, you know, at the turn of the last century, women weren't really uh, allowed to go to medical school. But now, here in Britain, I think we've got more women GPs than we have men. So the the idea that women couldn't graduate in these kind of subjects or get jobs in them is completely wrong. And and is this
0: is this partly a time thing, Anne? Will it be a case where because there's been such a big shift in in some industries where? Unlike not that long ago, 20, 30 years, I think there's so many more women that now that go, no, I absolutely want a career alongside becoming a mother or whatever or whatever the case may be. Do you think that there will be a natural progression that keeps going or do you think it really r- r- runs the chance of kind of not moving forwards unless there's, unless there's direct company and industry uh, intervention?
1: I think there has to be direct intervention because the playing field's not level. And you have to constantly ask yourself, you know, how to create a level playing field. I, I think also there has to be a bit of contract between business and society. If you think about it, childcare is a big issue in everyone's lives. Um, and COVID has shown us that quite honestly, men are not taking their fair share of childcare and the women have been at home looking after the kids and Zooming and, you know, carrying on with their jobs, and many of them have suffered from burnout, and we've seen millions of women leave the workforce as a result of this. Now, you could ask yourself, why, you know, why have the family just not balanced this? So there's something wrong there from a societal point of view in terms of what is expected of women
0: in addition to their day job. Is this as much on the education? Education system to be able to attempt to make society in a better place. Anne, is, is that too much of a simplified way of looking at it?
1: Well, I think the education system is is where you could start in terms of certainly encouraging girls, for example, to keep up their STEM subjects and uh, and and not, you know, describe things like, you know, I remember being at school and people saying, "Oh, maths, that's hard." You know, well, it wasn't hard mm. for me. I've got a pure maths degree. You know, but it's assumed to be a hard subject, whereas other subjects may not. I think that you know that could equally be well said to boys and girls, but it's often said to girls more. I think going back to the childcare situation, then I think that could be a, a government play as well as what companies provide and so on. My own company, Mastercard, actually provides four months. Full maternity and paternity leave everywhere in the world, and in some countries, well, in some countries we provide more than that because, for example, up in Scandinavia, I think it's six months for each parent, isn't it? So, in in places like Scandinavia, then you know you're giving opportunities for both parents to to be successful. Of course, it's not just when your kids are young; it's when they're growing up. Sometimes, I think. Having a younger child is easier than having a teenager, not sometimes, all the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me that. And I was, uh, I was ridding the teenagers enough, and I think I'm feeling them even more <laughs> after that comment. It's uh, it's tricky enough as it is now. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. I think um, the educational piece, the maternity and paternity leave, uh, is, a, is a very interesting subject. And as you say, there's a massive difference between scandinavia countries and, and a lot of the rest of the world that's for sure and i think uh let's just hope that governments can catch up and i mean we're, especially uh, we're talking today on november the 17th when the latest and what feels like a complete succession of um of budgets have been cast over the last few weeks in the united kingdom quite mm-hmm. how the balance has got right between the nhs between child care and all these other areas that need urgent attention is um, I, I don't often envy some of these politicians because it must be an incredibly tough job to to, to get that balance just right. Um, but one of the things I've often thought about, Anne, which are, again, a, a very random question, but wonder if you've got an opinion on, is that I often think it's a shame that some of the people in the top jobs within government and the PM himself haven't got more industry, broad global experience to be able to genuinely Affect change because they have uh, they've understood uh, some of the wider issues that uh, that are in play. Is there is there any, any solution of how you get, dare I say it, better people in some of these top jobs?
1: Well, I, it's it's interesting because you know you're pointing to the fact of career politicians, but of course there are many people in the government who have worked in industry, and it's not necessarily. The top job that makes all the decisions. It's all of the people underneath. I mean, I think there's something like 440,000 civil servants. Now, uh, if you could get a lot more industry experience into the civil service. I think you would make a huge difference. And and the civil service do go on secondments into industry and come back, but it isn't as prevalent as it might be. The other thing that they have, of course, is they have people like me that step in as non-executive directors. And I'm actually the lead person for that in the government department for business and energy base. And we bring our industry expertise to help people in government. But I believe you're right. I think it is helpful to have politicians who have done jobs ahead of, you know, running as political candidates. Most of them have, but it's a question of duration.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. And it's slightly off topic, but I thought interesting whilst we were in that uh, uh, that <laughs> era anyway. Uh, and one of the other things, uh, education, societal differences, of course, these are big, big areas but once you get into industry and people are thinking about the jobs they want to go into, the, the desire to create, I've seen the benefit of it ourselves in our journey over the last 10 years of growing from a startup to to, to having a few hundred people. But the reality is prevention is better than cure. And I'd be fascinated to, to know, Anne, with all the experience that you've got from working with the biggest global players with hundreds of thousands of employees to, to knowing smaller businesses and organizations how do the people that own businesses go about creating a balanced and the correct board the right way? And what's the wrong approach? Because it's certainly easy to get, uh, to have well-meaning intentions, but to actually do things in a, in a way that doesn't have um, the benefit that they're hoping.
1: From a board perspective, it's not that difficult because boards are roughly about 12 people on average, and you have a huge pool to fish from, and people can join boards with very different backgrounds and contribute a lot. If you're thinking about your own company and the development of your own company, it's very different because what you're doing is you're building a pipeline up over time, and you're trying to make sure that the best people actually get access and can rise to the top. And there's a lot of evidence showing that there's a broken rung in the middle where basically men accelerate and women decelerate, and it's not it's not always around oh you know going on maternity leave or or having kids or whatever um There are lots of other factors that play this at play here, and what you have to do is understand for your company what it is that you're looking for in terms of talent and what it is you're trying to develop in people. Uh, in order to give them the, those managerial jobs that are going to accelerate their careers and make sure that everyone has the opportunity to be exposed to that, I think you can do it by basically posting all of your jobs. That sounds <laughs> a fairly normal thing to do, but quite often in companies that doesn't happen, and then that com- you know creates intransparency. You can do it by having uh, mixed panels who interviewing. And interviewing uh, people from different departments um, so that you get a variety of thinking on the candidates that you're looking at. And particularly for that middle level, that those first step on the rung to management, you can put in mentorship programs inside the company to actually help people to develop those skills. And also, you can get very senior people in the company to sponsor them. You know, often in my company, I know many people around the world and I get people ring me up and say, oh, I'd like to move from Singapore to Canada. Can you just talk this through with me and how I could achieve this? And that's a really worthwhile thing to do for a senior manager because, you know, you're basically developing people with experience of different countries.
0: Absolutely. Yes. And uh, one of the questions I was looking forward to asking was about practical advice in relation to senior executives wanting to drive change and increase our diversity. Anne. And what I think you've just described there is looking at it in a very holistic manner, is going, where do we want to be? And what do we need to do from the ground up in our business to be able to give the best chance of organic equality and or the right people sitting on the boardroom to make sure we've got the best possible boards to be able to approach the, the subjects that we're going to face? So I think that's, that, that's really interesting. Have you noticed any differences in your career and your experience in the boardroom, Anne, of the way that things have progressed or the things that you feel like from a from your experience within the boardroom, things that could be could be done better that senior people could be mindful of
1: I've seen boards being run where people aren't allowed to express their opinion as as clearly as they might or given the time to do that and uh and I think it's very incumbent on the chair to make sure that everyone has their say in a boardroom, and mm. that's really. Well, it's kind of one one you know, you can be dealing with some people who are extreme extroverts and just want to talk all the time, <laughs> and and people who are much more introverted, but very thoughtful and can contribute a lot to the company. And, and you have to be able to draw them out. Also, as a chair, I think what you think about is, what are the skills that I need in my boardroom to make this company successful? I know that having run a financial board, key skills are things like regulatory understanding. I had a fantastic woman lawyer on my board um, who had been a, a a lawyer in the regulatory space. So thinking in terms of skill sets, not who are these people, you know, not not starting with a view of the person, but starting with a view of this is the actual talent that I want around the table allows you sort of much more flexibility to be thinking about how you build your board
0: absolutely what are the that you've seen the biggest blockers to creating a good diverse board. And you, you spoke about a couple of the things of just simply not having the amount of management. You know, I, I guess I will be looking at it from a more of a, an SME perspective. I think the vast majority of businesses in the world, of course, are sub 500 people, whatever the case may be. But what have you seen to be the biggest blockers as, as to achieving the kind of board that, that, that many owners will genuinely want?
1: I think it's the same about um, posting, you know, posting candidate roles inside the company. If you build your board by reaching out to people that, that you know, chances are, A, that you haven't reached far enough to have the very best people on your board, and you haven't reached far enough to have the people who think differently, have the cognitive diversity to come up with the challenges and the questions that you need to run your company. And of course, it can be very expensive to run big headhunting programs, for smaller companies. Um, but actually, I'm not even suggesting that big headhunting programs are the right answer either, because often the headhunters have you know, their own portfolios of people that they ring up for every board opportunity. <laughs> I, you know, I've seen a platform called uh, New Roll, which is attempting to be um, an open platform to actually post board positions and attract people from many different areas of of life, and I think that's a good idea. Certainly, automating things is a great idea, and I think you have to think about your own company, what you can afford, and you know what pools you're really going to fish in.
0: Does it does it go as far, Anne, or is this way too primitive to say that in uh, f- for the position on a board that it, there's simply got to be a diverse interview pool of candidates that get spoken to like it it simply has to be the right balance across that is it or is that too is that too simplified
1: no i don't think it's too simplified i think it's an imperative i think you've got to start with that in mind you know you Mm -hmm. should be looking at your certainly a long list of 15 people and you know you would hope you would have seven to eight women on there at least and then you know beyond that you know what have you got in terms of people with different ethnicities Uh, Very different backgrounds, as I said, cognitive diversity, because sometimes you've got, you know, people from different ethnicities, but they actually went to the same schools and the same universities and they think the same. They may look different, (laughs) but they could actually have, you know, an identical point of view on something. And that's the thing you're trying to avoid on a board.
0: I wonder how many people, um, one, will be testing and thinking about cognitive differences when they're actually, uh, you know, interviewing and uh, attempting to fill a spot on the board. And I mean, that's a fascinating question for listeners to take away for sure. But also, I think that actually starts with something you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is a brilliant uh, area is is the awareness of the board you've got. How many people have you got thinking a different way? How many people have you got creative ability? How many people have you got that are executors of plans? How many, or have you have you got too many of the similar people? And I think that's an excellent thing that I've, uh, I'll have i be thinking about long after this uh, this conversation. <laughs> and I've got no doubt that a lot of the listeners will be too. I'd, I'd be interested to see from the experience and the different places you've worked and been involved with over the years, and how you can spot a culture that embraces women who look act and importantly think differently. Is there been any things that you've seen over the years that we could uh that we could do some learning from?
1: Look, I think a lot of times when you get certainly um younger women joining companies, they look up to the top of the company oh, and everything in between true. and they go on their YouTube and they, you know, surf around Instagram and so on. And they look at the people inside the company and say, what do they look like? What do they stand for? What, you know, what have they said about themselves on LinkedIn? How do I feel about these people? And so I think that social media is starting to make that really clear. And that's where you start to see you know, does the, do the company have people who are all doing the same thing, posting the same thing? Um, you know, do the company have people who look outside and are interested in a range of different topics? How high, how, you know, have people got to in this company? What sort of jobs do they actually hold? It's all out there. The data is all out there for everyone to see. And I think that is the great thing about the space that we're in now.
0: You're absolutely right and it's a brilliant point. I mean even in the early 2000s when I was looking for my first job, company websites it was kind of a case of like this is what we do, this is our telephone number an hour and our address and you literally couldn't derive anything whereas I guess one of the good things with social media and there's lots of negatives but certainly some of the good things are without a doubt it kind of forces companies to say this is what we're about and uh, and, and and in markets where the you know competition for talent is so rife companies need to be showing to be doing more and, and, and acting responsibly with with diversity at, at the heart of what they do, because it really matters to people that are looking for work across all, all, all areas of life. So I think, yeah, a, an excellent point. It'll be interesting. And again, you've worked across different sectors. You've seen the financial field, technology, the life sciences, pharmaceutical field as well. And it'll be really interesting to know, because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a high energy person myself. I really enjoy throwing myself into things. And every now and then, that means that I'm not as naturally good at stepping back and gaining a good bit of perspective. I'd love to have known some of the habits that you've used over the years, Anne, to be as successful as you have been. And have there been any kind of core weekly, daily, monthly habits that you've done to ensure that you're um, you're thinking about things in the right way?
1: Well, it's really interesting. When I started work as a research scientist, I was twenty two. And I had done maths, physics, and chemistry A level, and pure maths and um, statistics at university up to master's level. And when I uh, when I joined, the head of the maths department said to me, "Oh, can you just write a research paper on? I forget what the topic was, but he wanted me to write a paper, which I did and submitted. And then he said to me, "Oh, you can't actually write, can you?" <laughs> I said, not particularly well, that was not something that was developed in the last seven years of my education, you know, and uh, and he said, don't worry about it. I'm sending you on a writing course, which he duly did a couple of weeks later. And uh, that course taught me to write rather like a sun journalist, I have to say. You know, don't write any sentences longer than seven words. If you think of a really complicated word, simplify it. Think of a much simpler one. And actually, that stood me in good stead being a global business head, because if you're speaking to people that don't have English as their native tongue, the more simple the language is, the clearer you present it. The shorter your sentences are, the more people understand you. So, so, and of course, with my Geordie accent, I'm totally understandable everywhere in the world. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the other side of it was that that same course I was taught to speed read, and this was even more valuable than writing. I think because it was pre-emails, but. I was taught to read a a document once, be able to retain the highlights of it and basically discard it. And when emails started to happen (laughs) and you got hundreds of these things a day, I was able to speed read through them very quickly and just, you know, discard and retain the information. And when I Became a board member, I would be able to sit and read a board paper, you know, it's anywhere between 200 and 400 pages in a matter of hours. This became absolutely invaluable in business. So I would say to everyone today go and learn some of these techniques, especially while you're young, because when you, you learn them when you're young, just like, like learning a new language or any new skill you adopt them really quickly and then it helps you for the rest of your life and you can tune it and become even better at it.
0: One of the big things that I've, it's always made me a a bit cross, to be honest, is when um, companies refer and it's referred to it as soft skills. And now you're not talking about soft skills. These are generally practical business assisting roles, but soft skills aren't soft. I've, I've seen so many individuals that have got the best academics and wonderful looking CVs and their ability with people isn't too strong. (laughs) And now that's referred to as soft skills. Now, one of the questions I was looking forward to asking you going on to now is what you've actually found, I think we're talking about them, but what have been the most effective personal methodologies that you've used to go and develop as a leader? But as you say, I think what would combine both soft skills and the kind of things you're talking about is having an appetite to learn and what we try and talk about as a business that attempts to empower people to succeed within x4 and outside of x4 is if you have that appetite to learn all the time you're never going to be too far off getting to where you want to get to and i would be fascinated to hear what have been the most effective personal methodologies. you mentioned a couple of specifics there Anne, but how have you gone about your learning journey over your career so far
1: Well, I think it is curiosity and I think it's appetite. You know, if you want to be better at something, you will be. There's no question about it. And I think as you travel around the world and you get exposed to so many different things, your horizons just broaden incredibly and you start to become interested in why things are the way they are. You know, I I think you become more of a student of history to a certain extent Um, because and that makes you better as a manager, because what you're really trying to do at that stage is understand people's culture so that you can communicate and connect with them in a way that's going to be effective. You know, and it ends up being very good for business. Um, So I think you've got to be very interested in people as well to be a really good manager. You've got to care about people, you know. We're all human beings, and and people know when you're sincere and insincere. Uh, It's no good standing up and saying, I really care about diversity, and you do something completely the opposite the next day. Again, the world is much more transparent. And I think we're much more egalitarian as well. Flat management structures. People don't just respect hierarchy in the way that you know they used to many years ago. People question things. And I think that's a good thing. Um, Even questioning, you know, when you don't under I know, say my parents, if the doctor said something, you know, the doctor was always right. Whereas today, when we go to the doctor and the doctor says, Oh, I think I'll put Put you on some statins or whatever it is. you said, "Hang on a minute, I was reading in the paper about these, and you know, without any medical qualifications, you feel perfectly, uh, you know, reasonable in in asking your own questions and inquiring more and reading about things that are affecting your lives. Mm-hmm. And I think having that inquiring mind and and asking the right questions are the are the things that
0: make you learn." How do how do parents and maybe again maybe slightly selfish question? How do you go about training and nurturing curiosity? Because the reality is, and all of us go through different stages. I found school okay. I found university okay, but uh, I knew the vast majority of it was not going to be relevant to what I was going to end up doing, and therefore you kind of get a bit disinterested. You really do. But as you say. Uh, there's one common thing amongst all the brilliant leaders uh, I've spoken to over the last couple of years of doing this from all those sectors that I've mentioned before. And curiosity is one of the absolute things that seems to be, as well as authenticity, I'm delighted to say, as, of the people that I've spoken to. Those seem to be the the, the combination of the biggest things that affect things. You've, you've got to end up doing something you love. I'm a big believer that you can't do you can't be great at anything that you don't love. But one of the things that I've enjoyed from pushing trolleys at Sainsbury's as a 16 year old to working in a civil service and everything else in between is that actually, I think it's a great thing for young people to get a real breadth of different industries and different jobs once they can learn blimey i wouldn't want to ever be involved in that but they can also begin to hone what they want to look like in the future um now out of all of the learning that you've done and yeah i I, I kind of like all of these three mediums Anne. but it's a question that i've asked anyway and feel free to pick more than one but has there been a best book podcast or film that you would recommend that you've taken some long-lasting learns from
1: Oh gosh, I'm you know I'm a big science fiction buff. Uh, you know, I when I was at university doing maths, I I, I love reading, but I could only sort of make myself feel happy by reading science fiction books because I felt it was somewhat related. So I love the um, you know the inventiveness and the imagination of the of the science fiction writers. You know, anything from you know, Frank Herbert's June to um, 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, you know, Kubrick was such a great director to Blade Runner. um, (laughs) All of these things have, you know, often dystopic, some dystopic visions of the future, but, um, but they also sort of, create this sort of fantasy in your mind that is sort of stretching your imagination about what can be achieved. And uh, and I find that incredibly stimulating. And then, of course, it, it brings you on to other books like uh, Homer Deus by uh, Noah Ewell about, you know, are we going to, through enhancement of humankind, evolve into something different? I think mm-hmm. all these things are worth
0: thinking about. Thought-provoking material, and I'll, I'll summarise that as thought-provoking material. Um, and, and just finally to wrap up, and add, it's been a fascinating conversation. If if there was one learn you'd want our listeners to take away in relation to leadership or anything that you've learned in your career so far, what what would that be?
1: You know, I <laughs> I use this a lot, but the truth is that as you're climbing up the ladder, it's actually a boss who has tremendous influence on how you do because they're the ones who are doing your year-end appraisal they're the ones who can affect your promotion and so on and I, I i say to young people you know if your boss doesn't rate you find a new boss uh,
0: and it's also fascinating and people set up, you know we hear it a lot if it's one of those things that is true i do believe it people don't leave businesses they believe that they leave managers and that's the reality of it if you've got a bad manager guess what you're going to lose good people so actually i, I think that in the last couple of years for us has made us go what upskilling of leaders are we doing to make sure that we're as good as we can be best in class and that we only get the best leaders actually uh, that have young people brought into the business with them so yes an excellent one to finish with and thank you very much there's been so much that i know would have resonated with listeners and and like me they'll be taking away lots of valuable ideas thank you everyone for listening if you enjoyed the episode please give a five-star rating and share with others in your network and thanks very much again
1: Lovely to speak to you, Peter.